city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Between 1940 and 1956, mad bomber George Metesky eluded New York City police. Metesky planted more than 30 small bombs in movie theaters, phone booths, and other public areas. Frustrated by their lack of progress, investigators asked psychiatrist James Russell, who was at the time New York State's Assistant Commissioner on Mental Hygiene, to study crime scene photos and notes from the bomber and see if he had any clues that could point them in the right direction. Russell came up with a detailed description of the suspect. He said he was unmarried, foreign, self-educated, maybe in his 50s, living in Connecticut, paranoid, and with a vendetta against the power company Con Edison, which had been the first target of his bombs. While some of Russell's predictions were simply common sense, others were based on psychological ideas. So, for instance, he said that because paranoia tends to peak around age 35, the bomber would now be in his 50s since the first bomb was planted 16 years ago. The profile proved dead on. And in January 1957, Metesky was arrested and confessed immediately. In the following decades, police in New York and elsewhere continued to seek help developing criminal profiles of particularly difficult-to-catch offenders. And in 1974, the FBI formed its Behavioral Science Unit to investigate serial rape and homicide cases. Welcome to today's show on criminal profiling. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a clinical and forensic psychologist, private investigator, and your host for today's show. I'm happy to welcome our guest for today. Pete Klisman. Pete Klisman is a former Ventura County police officer and a retired special agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, where he was one of their very first formally trained psychological profilers. He is a former professor of criminal justice, an award-winning author, and founder and director of law enforcement consulting company, Criminal Profiling Associates. Welcome to the show, Pete. Thank you, Joni. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, we are delighted to have you. And I want to start by just asking you how you would define criminal profiling. Well, let me say there's some long answers involved in that, but I'll give you a shorter answer, and that is simply examining a crime of violence using the training, the education, and the experience that an individual has. And in doing that, what we're trying to do is to identify behavioral clues. That's a very different concept, but behavioral clues that are involved with a crime and consequently helping investigators to perhaps identify an offender. So you are basically studying the crime scene and then kind of extrapolating out behaviors or patterns or personality traits that you think would do these kinds of crimes? Yeah, that's a very good way to put it, and extrapolating is a perfect word, because you take a look at some behavioral thing. For instance, if a person has wrapped a towel around the victim's face or head, is that a form of undoing? Okay, so what does that mean? Well, perhaps it means they are known to one another, and he doesn't want to acknowledge that person looking 
uh, at him. I had a case in Iowa one time where a victim's body, 19-year-old girl, was found out on a county road, and it was covered with, or partially covered by, a coat, a winter coat. No, it was winter. It was cold. It was below zero. Okay, so that makes sense to have a coat on, but she was lying face down, and the coat was not inside of, her arms were not inside of the coat. So the offender covered her with a coat, ostensibly to keep her warm while lying out on a lonely, frozen country road. What does that tell you? The offender cared for the victim. Those types of things. That is absolutely fascinating. And so I'm wondering, are these profiles, Pete, are they based on comparing the, I guess, pieces of this crime scene to other offenders and how they behaved at their crime scenes? Well, that's a very good question because you mentioned uh, it started back in 1974. Well, you know, I could argue that it started back in the, probably the 1890s with a doctor over in Italy who did some examinations of prisoners in Italy and started outlining some characteristics of those people. So that went forward. There have been a bunch of other things that happened, studies uh, at the University of Chicago, uh, various professors there. But finally, as you mentioned, it came up to 1974, and uh, that was the point at which the FBI kind of took the right step, I guess, in the right direction and formed uh, what was then called the Behavioral Science Unit and started evaluating, examining, researching, interviewing people in state penitentiaries, murderers, rapists, serial rapists, and heaven knows what else to begin building a body of knowledge. So how does that fit into what you say? Well, because all of those people, there were characteristics that could be gleaned from all of those interviews and from all of the crime reports. And I mean, we're talking a lot of research uh, and a lot of interviews, but that information would be collected and then could later be used to do some of the things that we learned how to do. Now, do you consider criminal profiling to be like an art or a science? In my mind, it's probably a little bit of both. And it's called more of an art And I think that's because there's, um, I don't know, an awful lot of different interpretations that could be made of the same thing by several different people. So in that sense, it's an interpretation. But the science part of it, I think, comes into effect where if you have somebody, and I would be one of those people who received initial training in this and then went back for more and more training examining Many new cases, such as the Night Stalker, for example, from uh, Los Angeles uh, back in the 80s, and, you know, case after case, then with examining and reading, uh, it becomes, I think, more and more of a science. So I guess that's one of those things, six and one half dozen the other. And so tell me about the training of this original group of criminal profilers. Well, I characterize that in my first book, FBI Diary, Profiles of Evil. I characterize that as profiling boot camp. I've been a cop for nine, ten years out in Ventura. And so 
by the time I got in the FBI, I hadn't just fallen off the turnip truck driving through town one day. I had been around the block a few times, and I'd seen murder cases. I'd worked murder cases, and I wasn't a homicide investigator, but we were a relatively small police department of, I think, 80, 100 people. And so the detectives had to be involved. If we had a murder, you needed bodies to help out. And so we all did. So I had an opportunity to work some. I had an opportunity to go to a number of different autopsies on cases. And so consequently, I, you know, learned a fair amount of stuff, I guess, before I went back to training. But still, when I got back there, I call it profiling boot camp. It was some of the most dreadful stuff that I had ever seen or imagined in my entire life. Did we talk about Metesky? Yeah, we did. Another thing I can add to that is uh, Dr. Brussel said, when you find him, he will be wearing a double-breasted suit, and he will be living with an older female, and he won't be married. Okay, so when they did, uh, he was dressed in pajamas, but they told him, well, go ahead back and get dressed. We'll go. Came back in a double-dressed suit, and he lived with not one, but two older female sisters. So, you know, that kind of information from the past really develops new information for the present. And that is so interesting. I actually have read quite a bit about Dr. Brussels in his work on the Metesky case. And I know that he, like it was uncanny in terms of how accurate he was. And the things like the double breasted suit, you know, even as a, as a psychologist who I think I'm pretty familiar with human behavior, that just almost seems like some kind of like crystal ball or you, art to have that be that specific. You can't imagine somebody saying something like that, but uh, Dr. Brussel, who I have talked to, and I actually had helped me with a case that involved oh, kind of a Tylenol case, only involving milk in Iowa being injected with something. But in any event, his experience told him that this guy is going to be of Slavic origin and that people that are of Slavic origin of that particular age are more inclined to dress in a certain way. And so that's exactly what Russell said, and he was right. And so that's based on his clinical experience. Then it sounds like in addition, as you were saying earlier, that there have been some research, some interviews, an attempt to develop kind of a database of offenders to compare, yeah, yeah, to compare these crime scenes. Because I know as someone who does a lot of violence risk assessments in prison, it's somewhat of a different context. And yet we are always looking at research validated risk factors, you know, things that have been associated with violence over a long period of time. And I guess the art part of it for me would be putting all this together to try to paint in a picture of this offender. Yeah. Unless you've had the training and you've been pointed in specific ways about specific things. For example, if a victim has been tortured prior to death, Well, what does that mean? Well, that means we're probably dealing with a sadistic type of a personality. You know that. But take that one step farther. What does that mean? I mean, what can we interpret or extrapolate from that? And that is, okay, a sadistic person, is he going to wake up one morning and say, I'm sadistic and I'm going to do this and this? No, he's going to have been sadistic uh, way back in his past. And that develops and gets worse and has things that he 
wants to do, perhaps fantasizes about doing, and doing those in maybe a sexual sort of a connotation. And so as a consequence, what can we interpret from that um, if we see that, those types of signs? Well, maybe he's the type of person who goes out to bars, likes to get in fights with other people and beat the snot out of them. Now, I remember years ago, my folks owned a bar in Denver, and they had a particular guy that would come in, and my dad would say that. My dad was actually the bouncer for his own bar. He'd been the heavyweight champion of the South Pacific in World War II. He didn't need a bouncer. He was it. But there was this one guy that came in that my dad says, I will not have a fight with that guy. Uh, he says, if he starts to get out of control, I'm going to use something. And I don't know what that something was going to be. But, you know, that type of thing, as you know, will manifest itself occasionally. And so now are we looking for a guy that maybe somewhere in the area has been in bar fights occasionally. I don't know, perhaps, yeah. So you're basically saying, which kind of makes sense, because we know that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they've performed that exact behavior, but if somebody is sadistic now, the odds are you're right, or that maybe they hurt animals as children, maybe they've been involved in domestic violence, maybe they've been you know, bullies or whatever, you are gonna see evidence that this person has gotten pleasure from hurting other people at other points in their life. Yeah, and you're exactly right. Past performance will indicate what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, no question about that. Probably been there ever since they were kids because what is it? It's a manifestation of anger. Okay, so if that's the case, does a kid naturally, are they born and then just grow up and all of a sudden, they're very angry people. No, there's a background to that. Let's look into the background. And that's part of what I do is to recommend, well, let's look at the background of some of these people that were in school in this town, for example, or in this area. Were there problems with this kid? And I can think of one specifically out in Newbury Park, California, who I could tell when my son was playing t-ball with him. This kid, in my mind, was going to kill somebody one day. I, I don't know why. I just felt something about his behavior. And as it turned out, I was right. Uh, they were, I don't know, they were 10 or 12 at the time. But later on, he wound up uh, stabbing and killing a kid when he was 17 over a drug deal. So a lot of this is predictable based on what happened as juveniles. Absolutely. I cannot even begin to tell you the number of emails or even text messages I've gotten from students who have said, I am going into forensic psychology and I want to be a criminal profiler. I mean, it is something that so many people dream about. So tell me about how the selection process works. Well, as you may know, I've got a website myself and I had to put on the website People would find me. In fact, I just got one today. But I put on the website that Professor Klisman, as I'm sometimes called, is a very busy guy and doesn't have the time to talk with high school students, you know, ninth grade students or 10th, about doing their research papers or to college students. There are resources out there. Look at the resources. You look at the Internet, you can find out everything you need to know. So... How do you do that? Go to FBI.gov, 
and just page around. They're smarter than we are about that stuff, at least smarter than me. And they will find on the Internet everything they need to know about the qualifications to become a profiler. Okay. Having said that, I think a lot of people believe they can get a degree in psychology from Southeast, West, North State College and then raise their hands and say, I want to be a profiler. Well, that's not exactly the way it works. The Bureau, if you can get hired, and that's not an easy process either. The year I applied, there were 35, 36,000 other people that applied, and I was fortunate enough to finish pretty high on the list, so I was hired. But you just don't get in by raising your hands. Then, once you do get in, if you do, it's a matter of going out into the field and working as a special agent, doing the multiplicity of different types of jobs that they are assigned to, different things, and proving that you are a quality person and a quality investigator. Then you do somewhat compete for those positions. It's more advantageous if you've got a master's or more than that, uh, but that still doesn't automatically qualify you to be a profiler. That ain't easy to become one. I was very fortunate to have been selected uh, when I was way back in the I don't middle 80s, but now, you know, so many people know about them. It's like, I'd never heard of it when they first called me and said, hey, Pete, you want to do this? What is that? I didn't know what they were talking about. And would you say that when you're called into a case or when you were called into a case, that the reception was typically a positive one by the people calling you in? It was because they wouldn't have called if they didn't want some help. Back in the days, back in the 60s and 70s, you know, law enforcement agencies didn't really want help. You know, you got two towns. I mean, if you're out in the Los Angeles area, which you know quite well, but if you're in Downey and then another officer in Monrovia and you've got homicides um, and they're, you know, fairly close towns, there's some similarities. The towns are apt to say, detectives to one another, well, we don't need any help. This is our homicide. We'll work it. I think that has changed a lot over the years. And that's probably one of the things, as you mentioned a while ago, the cooperation between agencies has improved dramatically. I would agree with that. We did a show recently on false confessions, and that's one of the things that kind of became clear in talking about with our expert, and it's my own experience, that I think there is more of a recognition that collaboration can actually improve the functioning of law enforcement as well as psychology by having those relationships, for sure. So this is a time, good time for us to take a quick break. We are going to come back in a few minutes. This is Dr. Joni Johnston talking with criminal profiler Pete Klismet. We'll be back in just a minute. You're listening to Threat of Evidence on America Out Loud. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. 
Welcome back to Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, your host for today. And we are having a really interesting discussion with Pete Klismet, who is a criminal profiler and somebody who has had a significant amount of experience. We spent the first part of our show really talking about the basics of criminal profiling, what it is, how do you get involved in it, what the training is like. And now, Pete, I want to shift gears and really get into some of the cases that you are involved in. So pretend I know nothing about criminal profiling. Tell me how you get called into a case. There are several different approaches to that question. It's not quite as easy as it might seem now. The impression people would get from television that such shows as Criminal Minds would be that somebody would call and they would talk to some wild-haired lady that is a computer expert, and then she would come running into the squad bay and say, hey, we got a case, and so everybody would get excited. And then somebody would say, all right, uh, wheels up on the Learjet in 30 minutes, and away they go. And uh, it's almost like, they get to the crime scene before the body is cold. You know, that is anything but the truth. So Quantico is where the training ground is and where the profiling unit is. And I'm going to call it that. That's not what it is. It's called the investigative support unit. But I'm old school, and I'm going to call it what it really is. And so Quantico would then get referrals in from us out in the field. I was out in the field. I was not assigned to Quantico. I was assigned to Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I was assigned to Omaha, Nebraska, and Grand Junction, Colorado during my period of time, about 15 years, uh, involved with profiling. And so I would get referrals. I'd get a call from my bosses in Omaha saying, "Uh, Pete, we've got a call from one of the police departments. Uh, They've got a homicide that's not solved, and they need your help. Can you do it? Sure, I can look at it. So that's how I would get my referrals. Then I would go, and my job was to collect all the information that I possibly could, maybe give the department a preliminary profile, although that was discouraged by Quantico, because they wanted us to collect all of the information out in the field in all of the 56 field divisions, all the different guys did that, and then would send the case back, package it all up, send it back to Quantico, and they would be the ones that review the case. Does that make sense? Yeah, so so let me just make sure. So you're saying all the information would include what? Police reports, interviews, witness statements, going out and actually walking through the crime scene, those kind of things? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, collecting all all the reports that are available, and that would include the autopsies uh, report protocol and photographs, very important, uh, photographs of the crime scene plus photographs of the autopsy. Um, And so from that, it's not just anybody that can do this. I mean, if you're a little weak of heart or whatever you'd be weak of uh, that would bother you, then... People would need to know that up front. Oh, I got my PhD in psychology, and I'm really, you know, I really understand all this stuff. Yeah, okay, so here's uh, nine pictures of an autopsy, or different autopsies. How does that work for you? I'm not interested anymore. And that's exactly what happened. When I went through my initial training, and I call it, as I mentioned, profiling boot camp, uh, we had 
read about 50 people there, women and men. And I believe after the part of the first week or after the first week, certainly nine of them dropped out. They couldn't handle it. It was too gory. Horrible things done to people like you see in the old movie Silence of the Lambs. I mean, real life Silence of the Lamb cases, they exist. And a lot worse things exist. And so collect all this information. The units kind of gotten together, reviewed this information. What would a profile look like? Well, I mean, in a sense, it would regurgitate the information that was gleaned from the police report, but it would look at it in a different way. Now, one of the things that we didn't talk about in the first period that we talked was how profiling differs from other types of investigations. Okay, so routine, quote unquote, uh, homicide investigations. Here's how it works. In a homicide investigation, the way we were all taught in all police academies, I've talked to many, many officers that said, yes, this is how it worked. You learned about the who, what, where, when, how, and then at the bottom of the list was what? Right. Why? The bottom of the list was why. Why was this crime committed? What does why give you? It gives you motive. Now, so what, I guess what I did kind of independently is to come up with what I call the solution matrix. And that is, you take that, the who, where, when, how, and why, you take that and turn it upside down. In other words, now at the top, you've got why. Okay, how do you determine the why? Well, the things that are down below the why, who, what, where, when, how, are what feed into the why. Then from why, we can make certain interpretations and we can say certain things about suspects. Example, what I mentioned earlier about covering up a body, undoing or demonstrating some sort of familiarity uh, with that person. That case happened about 20 miles south of where I was in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. A 19-year-old girl was found out on a country road, frozen. Uh, It was cold, 10 below zero. A farmer found her as he was on his way into work to have breakfast with his cornies as they did every morning in the winter. So they got an investigation started, Sheriff's Department, got Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation involved. Uh, As luck would have it, about a week before, I had done an introductory school for law enforcement in the area about profiling and what it was about and just kind of getting out there and evangelizing and letting people know that this is available. We can do these kind of things. Um, And so if you have something, let me know. Well, I got a call from a DCI investigator who I've known for a number of years. And he said, Pete, uh, you did the school and now all of a sudden I've got a case. Oh, really? So he said, yeah, we've got this girl, 19, lives at home with her mom, two siblings that are younger and stepdad. And she's found out on a country road. She's dead. She's got three shots in the back of her head, three shots in her back. Those two things are huge clues because what do they demonstrate? How many times do you have to shoot somebody in the head to kill them? Probably once, unless they're like me and they got it, as my wife says, a very thick head. But what does that demonstrate? Three in the back of the head, three in the back. There's six shots 
And what it demonstrated to me was there's a considerable amount of anger involved. Okay, fine. If there's anger toward that person, then what does that mean? Does that mean the person that they knew each other? I mean, is this a case where somebody came off the freeway into a town called West Branch, Iowa, to get some gas, saw this gal at a convenience store, snatched her, took her out on the country road, and tried to sexually assault her. She said no and got shot six times. No, that's not what happened for a variety of reasons. It was somebody that knew her and knew her very well. All right, who was our suspect? Younger siblings? Everybody said everybody had alibied everybody, including the stepdad. Well, with what I determined that there was anger involved, but then again, there was some remorse involved with covering her up with the coat to try to keep her body warm. Then to me, those were distinct clues that this was somebody she knew and knew very well. And I've recounted this in, again, my first book, FBI Diary Profiles of Evil, which has just been revised and put back on the market. And that case is in in that book. As it turned out, it was him. I sat down. The sheriff said, Pete, I want you to interview this guy. I said, that's fine. So I sat down and I interviewed him uh, in such a way. It was kind of a behavioral interview in a sense that I said, Mr. Roth, let me just say this. I don't think the good Mr. Roth, and I think that's you sitting right here with me right now, could have done this kind of a crime. No, sir, uh, you're right. Um, He couldn't have. Okay. But I think maybe there's another side of Mr. Roth that could have done this crime, and maybe we'll call him the bad Mr. Roth. Now, I was feeding him information that, you know, I guess was kind of hokey in a way, but it worked. And he said, yeah, the bad Mr. Roth is the person that did commit this crime. And as it turned out, they'd been having a incestual relationship for several years, and she wanted to break it off. He didn't. And they were out in the country having a talk. She said, drop dead, got out of the car, started walking, and he came up behind her, shot her, and boom, case closed. So he wound up state penitentiary for a number of years. So you talked about some of the psychological implications of maybe overkill or somebody who shows remorse by maybe covering up the victim after the fact, either because they might be embarrassed or because they're out in the snow, they might be cold. What about demographics like gender or age? What kind of hypotheses, if any, do you make in your criminal profile about those kind of things? Well, very important. I mean, in that case, you know, gender, age, or race, uh, it was relatively easy, you know, to say, well, okay, so our suspect is going to be a white male. Why? Because there wasn't anything else for 50 miles around that town. So, you know, very easy. Age, you can tell age sometimes by the impulsivity, I guess I'll call it, of the act that was done. Was there no planning involved? Was there a weapon that was used that was obtained from inside of the house, for example, to commit a sexual assault, the threats involved, uh, and then ultimately uh, commit a, a murder, for example? 
What did that show? It doesn't show any planning. It just shows somebody broke into the house, grabbed a knife, and went on to assault the victim. That would indicate to me a younger person, perhaps uh, somewhere between 18, 19, and maybe 22, 23 uh, years of age. And the ones I've had the opportunity to work, that's proven to be correct 100% of the time. One of the things I think is super interesting, and I'm so glad to hear you talking like that is because we mentioned criminal minds earlier. And I think there are some myths or maybe misconceptions about what criminal profiling can actually do. Because what I'm hearing you say is that you're looking at these behaviors to kind of narrow down maybe a suspect pool. And I think sometimes people watch these shows or they read a little bit of information and they almost think of criminal profiling as like a crystal ball. You know, you look in the crystal ball and you kind of go, it is the stepdad for 100% sure. So tell me what you come across in terms of maybe some myths or misconceptions about criminal profiling. Well, I mean, some people, I think from watching those shows, the Criminal Minds is a great example. Even a better example is CSI. But it's kind of like a lot of people think it's name that tune. I mean, you can you know, call a police department, get a little bit of information, a couple of sentences and say, oh, yeah, I think it's this type of a person. That's not the way it works. And and I call that uh, crystal ball criminology. I mean, I used to hear that a lot. Well, here comes Pete and, you know, where's your crystal ball, Pete? No, it's drunk in my car. Or maybe some sort of magic involved. But, you know, I think what I said earlier is that it's realistically, it's based on anything but. It's based on Years of research, years of education by people, plus experience of people, and from examining literally hundreds of different cases. And the other part of it is the research continues. Now, it's not using a crystal ball. It's not anything like that. It's me kind of busting my tail and going through all of the information I can from a crime, looking at all the pictures, reading all the reports, till I'm blue in the face. It may take several days, uh, sometimes more. And I'm not going to be able to give you the person's name, social security number, hair or eye color. But what I can do, hopefully, is to narrow that list of suspects down. To me, it's kind of like a funnel. And you look at the top, you've got a bunch of people standing on top of this funnel, and then the people jumped in the funnel, and out of the bottom of the funnel comes four or five different people. Much more manageable to work with than, let's say, 100. Absolutely. One of the criticisms I've heard about criminal profiling is the potential to, I guess, create tunnel vision. among investigators in terms of, okay, here's our list of suspects. Okay, now we're throwing out 50 suspects and we have 10 left. And what if the profile is inaccurate or what if this person is just kind of an anomaly? And how do you in your criminal profiling kind of guard against that as much as possible? Now, guard against what specifically do you mean? I guess guard against either developing kind of tunnel vision or developing a profile that is then misused to create this kind of tunnel vision where people narrow in and say, okay, looking at this profile, clearly it's got to be one of these three suspects and then focusing on these three suspects to the exclusion of other potentially viable suspects. That happens. I mean, it it happened here with me in the case of a 13-year-old boy that was 
murdered down in Durango, uh, Colorado, southwest part of the state, that the police department got a hold of me and the sheriff's department, actually, and they already had a suspect, a viable suspect. And they wanted me to do a profile on a case, and it was mainly to bolster what they you know, already knew just to see if what I would say would agree with that. And at the start, they said, well, we do have a suspect in this case. Then they started telling me about it. I said, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Don't tell me anything about your suspect. Here's my job. I look at all the reports. I look at all the photographs you've got. Ultimately, I went down to Durango, which is about 300 miles, but went down to Durango and did some driving around. The body or body parts were found up on a mountainside and looked at the road going up there, the distance from, as it turned out, the father's home, which who was killed him and is awaiting trial right now. But then there were a couple of aha moments, even to the extent of, of an epiphany, when I looked at the road and thought, why in the world, if you didn't know this kid, did you not dump him over the side where the body would roll down the hill several hundred yards? Why would you take that body eight and a half miles up into a place where people park to get their snowmobiles off and drive them around and take that body up there, carry the body another 50 yards probably, place the body almost ceremoniously behind a large tree that was fallen, then leave. I mean, there was a, there was a couple of aha moments right there that told me we've got somebody that knew this kid and knew him very well. Those are some of the clues I think that you get, and every case is different. Uh, Jenny is, I'm sure you know. Oh, absolutely. And that kind of makes it very difficult for people like you to kind of do your job. It's kind of interesting to hear, I guess, a couple of things that surprised me about your story on this last case is I've always had a fantasy that criminal profilers are get called in primarily for these kind of stranger murders or serial killers, but it sounds like you have gotten called in on the just wide variety of cases, including some where a family member was clearly the culprit. Yeah, I have, and I've had, I don't know, I've had a lot of cases, and they're so diverse, and when I say a lot of cases, those are things that I handle all by myself. I mean, even after I retired, I still got referrals and from attorneys and from some police departments to help them out, like I did with this case down in Durango, but I've had quite a few things, and I mean, there's nothing uh, that has been similar, so every single one of them is a challenge. It's a new challenge, and when you put your nose into those reports, you better not fall asleep with your face hitting the desk. Uh, You better read, and you better pay attention, and you better concentrate and take notes, because as you are, you're gleaning information out of there that perhaps they hadn't learned before. Great place for us to take a quick break. You're listening okay. to A Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and we are talking with a recognized expert in the area of criminal profiling, Pete Klismet. We'll see you in a minute and continue this fascinating discussion. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli 
forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's the truth behind the Black Lives Matter movement and the war on police at Amazon.com. Welcome back to Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston. My guest today is Pete Klesman, and our topic is criminal profiling, one of the most popular topics we have ever had on this show. Pete, you have told us already about some really fascinating cases you've been involved in, but I'm going to put you on the spot here by asking you about the most memorable case you can remember? Well, Jenny, I I guess it would boil down to a case for me at the time that really was quite ordinary, but ultimately wound up being a 30-year case that wound up in a $28.1 million lawsuit against the county and individuals in Nebraska. And it also involved six defendants who were totally innocent. It is an incredible story. These six defendants served an aggregate of over 70 years in the state penitentiary, and five of them admitted to a crime which they had never done. Several of them testified at trial, ultimately convicting the sixth defendant who didn't commit the crime, none of the six could possibly have committed the crime. Let me just tell you the story. Is that okay to do? Absolutely. We're dying to hear it. Okay. I got a call from my assistant special agent in charge uh, in Omaha one night at home and said, Pete, I need you to go out to town of Beatrice, Nebraska, which is, I don't know, 40 miles south of Lincoln. And what's happening out there? So... He said, well, the police department's got a murder case. They've been working on it for three weeks, and they're stuck. They can't get anywhere with that. Okay. They need some help. Fine. So I said, well, I can't get out there until X date. Uh, It took me several days because I had grand jury and I had a bunch of stuff going on. But when I could, I got out there to help them. Facts of the case. 68-year-old woman in her apartment Somebody got into the apartment, sexually assaulted her two different times in two different places, and I say places on her body, was in the house for a considerable amount of time, and ultimately the body was found by a relative the next day. She had been suffering from pneumonia but was smothered by a Afghan that had been wrapped around her face. Okay, so maybe we have, what, a little undoing here, uh, perhaps. I got down there, and here again, they, they do want to help you as much as possible. And they said, okay, here's the thing, Pete. Uh, we've got these facts, and we've got several different suspects. And so here's the thing about timeout. Okay, five-yard penalty on you, illegal procedure. You don't know this, but don't tell me about your suspect. They let me... I'm just like anybody else. If you feed me the information, I'll run with it, probably. 
you know, we're all a little lazy in some ways. And I said, I need to go through everything you've got. And I'd already told him, bring that. And then you let me tell you what I think about a suspect. Okay. Well, what I learned is about a year, year and a half before, there had been three break-ins at uh, houses where older women were living. And this lady that was killed, the 68-year-old, was in an apartment. But still, three different houses. And a younger male attacked each of them, ultimately to undoubtedly commit sexual assault. But in one way or the other, the three elderly women scared this guy away. He left, and those sexual assaults were never completed. Well, in the Helen Wilson case, the 68-year-old woman, it was completed. So the facts told me that we were dealing with a younger male. Well, that didn't take a dean's list candidate to figure that out. Uh, but we were dealing with uh, the same person that committed these other crimes. Secondly, that it was not a crime of passion. It was a crime of anger. Now, there are several, people don't know this, but there are several different profiles or types of sexual assault offenders. And I put this guy into the anger retaliatory profile, I guess, of, of defendants because of the fact that she was sexually assaulted both vaginally and anally. Then she also had some wounds on her body, some bruises uh, that he had hit her a number of times. Why do you have to hit a 68-year-old woman to sexually assault her? Probably don't. You can probably get control other ways. But he had taken a knife from her kitchen, and that was found there. And in, in any event, the police department did a good job. They collected the evidence they needed. The autopsy showed that the sexual assault and the beating wasn't what killed her. It was actually the suffocation that wound up killing her. So they called me. I give them preliminary profile because our requirement was to do that, perhaps, and then to send all of the stuff that we had back to Quantico and let them do the official profile. That happened. But the thing I found was when you went to a crime and you were called by the police, they don't want to get your profile three or four months later. They want something now, right? So I, I gave them that, and I outlined facts about a suspect. The person that ultimately proved to be a suspect had left town, and that's another characteristic right there. So flight is a clue. But they didn't really feel like they had enough to catch this guy. Again, this entire story occupies about six chapters in my first book, which has been recently redone, FBI Diary, Profiles of Evil. It's an incredible story called by some the greatest failure of the criminal justice system in the history of the United States. So four years go by, case goes cold. Some officer that is completely lacking in uh, the skills to do this, infused himself into the case. Just to make sure I understand. So you have already been involved in the case. You have put together a preliminary profile, which they've looked at, but they haven't been able to use this to find a viable suspect. And so now it's four years later. Exactly. Now it's four years later. One of the mistakes that's often made is with a cold case, uh, they get a new lead 
and they forget about everything else that had happened. They don't look back on the previous investigation. They take off with the new information, which is exactly what happened here. The new information, if they had examined that, had to be fraudulent, had to be untrue, because it was from a girl at the time that was 16 years old and meant she would have been 12 years old at the time. It was the coldest night of the year in February, and here's a 12-year-old girl that supposedly was out at 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, and that's what she tells the investigator, who buys the story. She starts identifying some different people that she believes may have been involved in this. So the investigator, with the assistance of a uh, part-time deputy who also is or was a psychologist there in town, got these people and rounded them up one at a time, interrogated them, and even got them to the point where, again, assisted by the psychologist, got them to believe that they were involved in the crime. One guy saying that, well, I dreamed about it. If I dreamed about it, I must have done it. Hardly, right? There's no way these six people could have done it. In a small apartment, it would have looked like a herd of wildebeests had gone through the place, and it didn't. And I had said in the original profile, it could not be more than one person that committed this crime. Long story short, they wound up identifying and interrogating and somehow succeeding into badgering five people to admit to this crime, and they didn't do the crime. Testified, six guys found guilty, taken to court. They were all found guilty, 70 years plus in state penitentiary. Finally appealed, an attorney got the appeal, and luckily the police department had saved DNA from the victim. They did DNA matches. None of the six people matched DNA, but an exact match for the profile that I had done did match the DNA. Unfortunately, he had died of AIDS about 10 years before they identified him. So these six people were convicted on the basis of lies, fabrications, suppositions, and conjecture, none of which was true. Ultimately, filing a federal lawsuit, which, long story with that, but it was last year, they were awarded $28.1 million. The county almost had to go into insolvency, and they were the ones that were responsible for paying it. So, so were you involved in the case after the initial profile? That is really a good question, because I wasn't. Uh, other than I would follow up occasionally, and I'd ask them, well, can you let me know what's going on so I can maybe validate you know, what I've told you? Uh, because it wasn't my responsibility. I was in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, which was probably 280 miles away from Beatrice, so I couldn't just you know whoop down there anytime I wanted to. And so I would call occasionally every month, couple months, and finally I, I wound up getting transferred in Omaha and just kind of lost contact with it. Now, <laughs> the funny part of this story is this continues, and I just almost had forgotten about the case because my involvement I thought was very simple. And frankly, it was a very simple profile to do. I thought, you know, it, it was an easy one to do. So 
I had gone on to Grand Junction. I had retired. I had gotten a job as um, associate professor and department chair of criminal justice at a, a community college over in Colorado Springs. I was working there one day. I was sitting in my office, minding my own business, getting ready for a class, and I got a phone call. This is Pete. Uh, hello, is this Peter Klismet? Yes. Are you the same Peter Klismet that did a profile on the case involving Helen Wilson? At which point I started thinking, oh, my God, you know, what is this going to involve? But it was a reporter from the Omaha World Herald asked me if I would still stand by the profile. And I said, well, you know, if I did it then, I knew the facts. Yes, I would. And it turned out she told me what had happened in the intervening however many years it was, 20, 25, 30 years. And so this is a murder case that actually culminated uh, with no justice other than money over a period of uh, 30, 35 years. Yeah, interesting. Are there cases that you think tend to fit criminal profiling techniques more than others? Yeah, there's no question about that, Joni. Probably the cases that I feel are most adaptable to the the concept of profiling would be unsolved murders, serial killings, and frankly, contrary to what a lot of people might think, serial killings are, are very rare, but certainly they do, and certainly sexual assault cases. Those are the three areas. Well, serial killings, I only had any involvement in two of those uh, in my time in the Bureau and as, as a profiler, but uh, with sexual assault cases and with unsolved murder cases that I, I felt like that's where I earned my bones. So, yeah. This is kind of a tough question. Are there ever times when you feel like criminal profiling can actually make a case worse? Well, in fact, uh, yeah. One of the things I have done since retiring from the Bureau and retiring from the college is starting a business, as you mentioned at the very start, criminal profiling associates. And so people will, quote, find me, unquote, because I'm on the internet and, you know, all you do is plug my name in and holy mackerel, you're sick of looking at this guy. But an attorney um, out in California found me and there was a case in which a former army guy that was a security guard working his first night as a security guard was accused of, was ultimately convicted and ultimately spent about 11 years uh, in the state prison, largely based on testimony that was inaccurate from a profiler who had been assigned to Quantico and who I knew. And so this appeals attorney asked me to take a look at the case. He sent all the reports out that he could send. And I spent a little time, I say a little time, several weeks or longer, looking at all that and said what that profiler testified to in court was inaccurate. And here's why I say that. Now, these things obviously make somebody else very happy with you, but that's not my problem. Uh, He wound up getting a guy put in prison for 11 years on information that was completely inaccurate. He was not a well-trained guy, I don't think, or I don't know what. But anyhow, this case went to the uh, LADA's office, LA County DA's office, to their appeals unit, which never agrees to allow an appeal of a case uh, successful. 
And uh, this was one of the rare ones that did because I guess of my pointing out just how inaccurate that profile was. Wow. I was wondering about that. Is criminal profiling generally recognized by the court? It isn't. Um, There have to be, as we talked in the first segment, is it an art or a science? Uh, Well, it's more of an art. And if you look at it, it's not like fingerprints where uh, an expert can look at fingerprint and say, yes, uh, that is this type of fingerprint and I match it up with this and they match. Yes, that's the same person. Or serology, blood or a number of DNA, for example. But profiling, I could take a look at a case and I could interpret the facts much differently than someone else might. And so as a consequence of that, well, that's exactly what happened in that case in Palmdale or Lancaster that I was just talking about with that former soldier. Or the uh, other profiler had looked at the facts as he saw them, and to his credit, I guess, was given some bad information by the L.A. Sheriff's Department investigators who were not among the more competent people in the world. But in any event, he was given bad information and, as a consequence, made some bad conclusions, and I had to refute those. There was a number of conclusions that were made that I refuted And so consequently, he was found not guilty. We are unfortunately out of time, but just quickly, we'll have all your contact information on our website, but just very quickly, is there a place you would want to point people like right now, if they want to review your website or if there's a phone number, I want to give you a chance to let our audience know before we close. Um, My website is criminalprofilingassociates.com. That's the best place to look, you find out everything you need to know about me and more and get bored to death and go to sleep. But then Amazon.com, punch my name in, uh, just punch me in on Google and you'll find all sorts of stuff. But Amazon.com, they've got uh, the two books that I've got currently out right now, FBI Diary Profiles of Evil and FBI Diary, it's a series, Homegrown Terror, which doesn't mean Islamic. It means stuff that happened right here in Colorado. This sound really interesting, and I hope our audience will consider checking those out. I know that I am definitely going to do that. Well, thank you so much again, Pete, for being on our show today. And thanks to our audience for tuning in. We really appreciate that. And we're always open to ideas that you have for a show. You can get me through our Threat of Evidence website. Thanks for listening. 